0: How do you laugh in Hawaii? With aloha. (laughs) Hello everybody and welcome to Starting Sustainability, episode 69. I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. I hope everybody is doing wonderful today, tomorrow, and for the rest of the week. What did everybody think of Tisa Watts' episode last week, Beginner Gardening? So much information. It was so good, though. It was a little bit long, and that's why I didn't really do a very long Catch Up with Kaylin segment. And now we can do that this week. What have I been up to? Well, a couple weeks ago, I shared with everybody all of the work and effort and embarrassment that I went through trying to get fertilizer and dirt. And I also got pots to put plants in and planting soil and all of that stuff. I ordered loofah seeds. I got the loofah seeds and the garlic planted. And I've started with that. And I was told garlic is relatively easy to grow in an indoor setting. And the loofah seedlings are gonna be really hard. And I thought, well, we'll just try it anyway. So I put them in the pots and I did follow Tisa's advice and I made sure that they have holes in the bottom so I don't bog up my plants and rot out their roots. And two weeks later, my little seedlings are popping up for both. The garlic came up first and it came up fast. And now the loofah little seedlings have popped up and through the soil. I'm very excited. So hoping that I can grow my own loofah this year. After all my conversations with Tisa, am I still going to garden this year? I want to, but now I'm still intimidated. (laughs) She she put my mind at ease on some things and on other things. I'm just like, wow, this is going to be so much work. So I'm very back and forth right now. I'm still going to go for it, but I think I'm just going to do less amount of items. Like I'm thinking maybe six different plants would be good instead of the 600 that I had originally envisioned throughout my yard. It's still the beginning week of March, so I have a little bit of time to kind of finish planning and designing and orchestrating it all out. Good luck to me, and good luck to you, too. I think it was last week that I shared my husband showed the commercial, the infomercial with me, about the Dude 1000, or the Dude Wiper 1000 bidet sprayer targeted for men, and thought it was funny, told me all about it. Anyways, I came home last night, and there were a couple of Amazon packages inside the door my husband had already opened them up and I was like oh what did we get because I didn't place any orders (laughs) and it turns out one of those items was dude wipes so flushable toilet wipes kind of the opposite of the bidet sprayer in terms of sustainability (laughs) but uh it's just another battle so I just laughed and shook my head at the same time we actually got further away from the bidet sprayer instead of closer to it but one of these days we'll get there i just have continued hope also this past week my husband announced that he is looking for a triple blade safety razor he wants to get a safety razor now instead of his disposables which is great yay wahoo one point for me And so I told him about my super awesome leaf razor, how it's triple blades, and it's amazing, and he doesn't want to get it because it's too girly. And I told him, like, hey, it comes in different colors. Like, I mean, I got the rose gold color, but I'm like, there's black, there's stainless steel. And he's like, no, it's a girl razor. I need a man's safety razor with triple blades. If anybody knows of a triple blade manly safety razor, because... He has done safety razors in the past, but they all had a single blade and they were a pain in the butt. So now he wants the triple blade. If anybody knows of any good brands of triple blade safety razors for men, (laughs) please let me know. And you can do that multiple ways. You can email me directly, Kaylin, K-A-Y-L-I-N, at Startingsustainability.com. You can join the Facebook group, Starting Sustainability. Instagram starting underscore sustainability there are so many different options that you can do that (laughs) so reach out let me know share with me and then I'll be happy to share it with the rest of the group because I am very confident that I am not the only woman who has a spouse who is not on board with sustainability so anytime that he shows even the tiniest hint of interest I am all over it, trying to steer him in the right direction And this past week, I also started a new book, and it's called Zero Waste Living the 80-20 Way by Stephanie Miller. It has been extremely informative, and I want you to stay tuned for a future interview with her. What has Sustainer Nation been up to lately? In honor of the Buy Nothing Project, I did a quick little throwback episode 66 and I asked Sustainer Nation for their Sustainable Sunday segment on Facebook what they have been doing to name the coolest secondhand item that they got for free. And here are some of the responses. Jessica shared that the coolest thing that she got was a burly bike trailer, but she's also gotten a lot of other things like 90% of her daughter's clothing Blow up kids, travel air mattress, printer ink, a bike basket, a pregnancy body pillow, baby monitor. Those things are expensive. You got a free baby monitor? Heck yeah. Also kids toys, party decorations, and so many other great things. Carrie said that the coolest thing she got was a 15 by 30 above ground pool with a wraparound deck. And they've had it for 10 years. For free. I don't know how much pools are, but I know that they are very, very expensive. So, way to go Carrie, and Alexandri said that she got a coach scarf for free. Oh my gosh, a coach scarf. So, yeah, that just goes to show that you can get lots of really amazing treasure <laughs> from a buy nothing group and just being open-minded and accepting second-hand items definitely puts you in the lead. Well, way to go Sustainer Nation. Keep going for secondhand items, free if applicable, but definitely at least a major discount. So keep up the good work. Keep it going. We are making an impact with every little action. So be proud of yourselves. Today, I have a very fantastic and educational interview lined up for you with Tom Bowman. He is the author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple, a very short but extremely informative book. And it's a part of the Resetting Our Future series. Earlier, I mentioned I was reading Zero Waste Living the 80-20 Way by Stephanie Miller, and that's also part of this book series. Anyways, first, I want to disclose that this interview was actually recorded on January 20th, 2021, also known as Inauguration Day. So there will be a little bit of talk in regards to the U.S. rejoining the Paris Agreement. And If you don't know what the Paris Agreement is, don't feel bad because it took place in 2015 and I did not pay attention to sustainable things until about 2019. Therefore, I didn't have a clue about it either. But I do know about it now and I will give a brief summary because we do talk about it in the interview. The Paris Agreement was a legally binding international treaty on climate change and it's a landmark in the multilateral climate change process because for the first time a binding agreement brings all nations into a common cause to undertake ambitious efforts to combat climate change and adapt to its effects. It was adopted by 196 parties in Paris on December 12, 2015. In 2016, the U.S. left the Paris Agreement. And now, as of January 20th, 2021, Inauguration Day, the U.S. is back on board with the Paris Agreement. Very, very cool. So now that all of that has been explained, let's go ahead and listen in on the interview with Tom Bowman. Here it is. Tom Bowen is optimistic about solving the climate crisis. He is a strategic advisor and writing team lead for the U.S. Action for Climate Empowerment Strategic Planning Framework. The framework is an initiative by social scientists, educators, scientists, and activists to help the U.S. meet and exceed the goals of the Paris Agreement. His work received White House Champions of Change Recognition, and he was inducted into the International Green Industry Hall of Fame. He is also the author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple, the book that we will discuss today. Welcome, Tom. Say hello.
1: So it's so nice to be here. Thanks.
0: (laughs) So you have quite a a long list of accolades going on.
1: (laughs) I have a lot of work going on anyway. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true. That's very true. Well, would you like to give us a brief summary of your book?
1: Sure. So, so I wrote this book last year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. I was approached by a publisher, uh, Changemakers Books, that was doing a series of very short, very quick turnaround books about how we can recover from the depth of the pandemic and the economic disruption that we're dealing with in ways that solve some of our biggest challenges. Because what happens in a moment like this is in spite of the horrific tragedy that we're all living with and the um, and just the difficulty that so many people are struggling with, we reset the way we live, right? We're all, so many of us are working from home. Those who can't are still having to go to more dangerous workplaces. Um, and it's reorganizing our economy. We're noticing that when we don't drive, we get cleaner air in our cities. And these are these things affect our behavior and our expectations in ways that, that allow us to readjust. It makes things possible that didn't seem possible before. And so what if solving the climate crisis is simple as, is based around a pretty basic idea. And that is that, we respond to climate change based on how we understand it, how we've been taught to think of it, right? And we've been taught to think of it as this really complicated global problem that, you know, it's an entangled Gordian knot of global systems for food production and transportation and urban infrastructure and supply chains and financial markets and international treaties, and it goes on and on and on. And when we think of it in those terms, we all feel really small, right? And we feel it's easy to become discouraged, to sit on the sidelines, to feel like that we're just hoping against hope that someone will solve our, this problem for us. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I've I've been a Mountaineer for years, and I've read the literature about why some people survive catastrophes and other people don't. Uh, and one of the features of people who do is that they recognize the situation they're in and they know they can't just solve it in a heartbeat, but they always, in, they, they they can see the beauty in the circumstances they're in. They care about surviving for the sake of someone they love or care about. And so they, um, they take the next right step. It might just be as simple as sitting down and resting or getting warm or figuring out the next, you know, how to get through the next problem so that you keep going and going and and your momentum builds. So if our view of the climate crisis is stifling us and making us feel powerless, it's not very useful, first of all, right? It's not very helpful. So what if we turn that on its head? What if solving the climate crisis is actually simple? And I'm talking about the way we think about it, right? if we if we assume that it's simple what do we discover well we only have to do one thing we have to stop burning fossil fuels and we have to do it fast and and we don't want to fail so there's kind of a mantra that i came up with stop burning fossil fuels well before mid century and absolutely positively do not fail and when we do this it suddenly makes it a tangible task for you and me and everyone else, for our our households and families, for our businesses and institutions where we work, for our communities, for our governments. Uh, And it sort of of puts it in our own hands, which I think is the key to building public support for climate action.
0: Yes, that is the mantra of your book. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know if you're going to say it right away because I didn't want to spoil it, but...
1: Yeah, spilled the beans. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, my next question was: Are we too late to solve the climate crisis? But based off of what you just said, no, there's hope.
1: (laughs) Well, I believe there's hope, and and the reason I say, I mean, we all know that we have progressed into climate change much farther than we thought we would a decade ago, right? Much farther than any of us want to, but it's never too late. It's just never too late, right? I mean, this is the this is the. If you think it's too late, you're going to do nothing, and if we do nothing, it's going to get worse. So, so as much as we've caused harm already, that that's irreparable, or that's very difficult to recover from, that we have to adapt to, doesn't mean it's too late to make enormous progress. And if we understand that it's in our hands and not someone else's, and that the things we do matter. and make a difference, then it changes our whole approach. And so that's what the book is about, is why do our, why do my actions matter? Why do your actions matter? Um, and it kind of explores how that works.
0: So let's examine your simple solution. Stop burning fossil fuels. Now, in terms of big companies with deep pockets and overpaid lawyers, not to mention all the kickbacks and inside payoffs, for politicians and, <laughs> and a lot of people have personal investment in those companies. I anticipate that your simple solution is going to encounter a lot of resistance. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely, and it has for decades. Um, there is a well-funded campaign by fossil fuel interests and libertarians to uh, to prevent policies that move forward on climate change. But there are two threads going simultaneously. You know, we we focus a lot on the negative trends, the rising emissions, the um, the corporate greed, the lobbying power. But there's another trend that that you have to you have to look hard to see that it's really a trend, and that is that institutional investors are starting to wake up to the fact that they're that the money they're putting into major corporations is vulnerable to climate risks. So, um, so, you know, the, the uh, president of BlackRock, the biggest investment firm in the world sent a letter to CEOs last year that said, we're not going to value your companies purely on the basis of short term profit anymore. We're going to value your companies based on your engagement with stakeholders and a broader range of criteria and according to people who work in corporate boardrooms a lot, there is a shift that's taken place in corporate America. Companies are realizing that their economic future depends on dealing with climate change more effectively than they have. And so, most big companies have a climate action plan of some kind. It's they're not universally enough, and and the you know it, it's really telling to me that I live in California, where we have stricter uh, vehicles. Emission standards than the rest of the country, mile per gallon, you know, cafe, mile per gallon standards. And the Trump administration tried to roll those back nationally. And the car companies bound together and said, "Well, we're not going to play ball with you. we're going to we're going to stick with the tougher standards. Why? Because they've already started that, they've made that investment curve. California's the fifth largest economy in the world all by itself. And so, it doesn't make sense for them to invest in this market and then invest in different standards for other markets. Right. So, so there is momentum building even in the business world that are, that is positive. And where government can really help is to embrace and support that and push that farther. But yeah, there's ups and downs. We take a step forward, we take a step back. Um, That's the nature of change.
0: So once the big companies are getting on board and make changes, do you think that there will be an issue getting the civilian, the average person on board and making their own changes in their own life?
1: Um, Yes and no. Yes. But uh, here's the no part. Um, Behavioral psychology tells us that people, all of us are really attuned to what we think other people think about our choices In other words, we pay a lot of attention to what the people who matter to us think. We want to, and just imagine junior high and high school where peer pressure is so powerful, right? Well, we don't exactly ever outgrow that dynamic at one level or another, so Here in the town where I live, there was an effort to get people to replace their their lawns with drought-tolerant landscape because water gets short in California. And they say that the hardest task is to get the first house on the block to make the change because the inertia is so big. But once somebody does and breaks the ice, then you see two or three other yards convert. And then you see this competition start to build where people want to have the most interesting drought-tolerant yard. (laughs) <laughs> right. And this is kind of kind of the model for social change that works. What we should focus on are the people who are most amenable to adopting climate-friendly behaviors. That's where we should put our effort because they, we collectively send signals to the people around us that this is a high priority and that it's safe to do it, and that's how you start to expand the circle of people who take action. So, I think in the climate world, we've paid way too much attention to the deniers and not enough attention to supporting the people who want to make change because we're the vanguard.
0: <laughs> so back to your drought tolerant yard, that's not a phrase that that I'm familiar with as a person in the Midwest who has sure, pretty yeah. regular rainfall, but I did move to Texas for three years ah. and down there it was very common for people to have rock gardens in their front yards. They didn't have flower beds along their house. They had different rocks and they would have some cacti and aloe plants. And it didn't click until I read that part in your book about a drought tolerant yard. I said, oh, yeah, because it rains like seven times a year in Texas. (laughs) So now it makes sense why they all have the rock gardens. So is that what your neighborhood looked like? Is it rock gardens or what do you have for a drought
1: tolerant yard? No, it's they call it California friendly landscape. It's trees and plants that don't need regular watering. Um, So it's it's succulents. It's sort of desert style trees. Um, some people have cactus and succulents in their yard. Some people have gravel, big stretches of gravel and rock gardens. The trouble with lawns is in a hot climate like this, they take a lot of water. And if you use a sprinkler system, almost half your water goes down the drain on the sidewalk into the gutter and doesn't even end up on the, on the yard in the plants at all. And so if you have other kinds of plants, you can have those micro drip irrigation systems that put the water right by the roots of the plant you care about and it lets the rest of the place stay dry. Um, so you save water that way too. And here in California, we get almost all our, we get most of our rain in three months out of the year, you know, in January, February, March, sort of, we're getting almost none this year. It's pretty scary. And then all that precipitation falls as snow up in the high mountains And it's most of our water comes from five, six, 700 miles away. So Los Angeles basin would not be a crowded place if we weren't importing water from someplace else. (laughs) So hence, it's like Texas in where you lived, you know, we need to conserve the water that we have available and the, you know, putting it on lawns is a big waste for us.
0: Going back to your mantra, stop burning fossil fuels When it comes to cars, you said the car companies Mm -hmm. are making big initiatives, making changes. You have the Tesla coming out that's all electronic. So my question is about the philosophy for a lot of people who are sustainably focused is to keep what you have as long as possible. And that's one of the big debates. Do you keep the fossil burning car out of the landfill or do you get the new electric car because they both have their pros and cons.
1: (laughs) Really good question. I know that's a really fair question. And so I looked into that because I I ended up buying an electric car. And the reason I did is because there were several studies that found that they looked at how much uh, uh, greenhouse gas results from manufacturing the car versus how much greenhouse gas results from driving the car over its lifetime. And the lifetime emissions dramatically overshadow the production emissions. So there's a really interesting book about sustainable materials that makes the case that if you have something and the efficiency of that product is not really improving over time, you want to keep it and use it for as long as you can. But if efficiency is improving over time, then pretty soon it's better to get rid of it and get a new one because environmental damage from something that's more efficient will be so much less than it is from your old model. This is why, um, I don't know what it's like where you live, but in California, electricity is sometimes in short supply too, when it's hot and everybody's running their air conditioner. And so the utility companies give you incentives to get rid of your refrigerator. If it's between five and 10 years old, because energy star refrigerators keep getting better and better and better every year. And they want you to have the most efficient energy efficient one. So what happens to your old car or your old refrigerator when you get rid of it? Well, it doesn't really go to the landfill because most of it's, a lot of it's made of metal and the metal all gets recycled. So some of it ends up in the landfill, of course, but the majority of it is gonna get recycled. And then the other advantage of buying that electric car or that energy efficient refrigerator is that you're spurring the market in the right direction right? Because what we want to do is phase out gasoline-powered cars and replace them with cleaner electric cars. The more that that happens, the lower the prices will drop, the more people will be able to afford them, and the faster we'll convert the whole fleet to something cleaner. So there's kind of this wonderful cascade that's that's in our favor.
0: <laughs> and you'd brought up energy shortages. And that made me think when we stop burning fossil fuels, that leaves us with wind energy and solar energy. Now some of the negative things that I have heard are that they don't store well and they don't travel well. So if you have a very highly dense city, you're going to experience a lot of shortages. It's going to be hard to power that entire city just off of wind and solar and clean energy. That's why a lot of fossil fuels are still being burned for energy Mm-hmm. Do you have any insight to address any concerns with that?
1: Yeah, I do actually. Um, because one of my, couple of my clients have been electric utilities over the years mm-hmm. and you know, that the challenge with solar and wind is if the wind suddenly stops or if a cloud goes over your solar array, the energy output drops to zero in a heartbeat. And then as soon as the cloud is gone, it comes back to full power in a heartbeat. And so, um, And so you need to be able to balance that in the grid. And so there's some good news about there's sort of, I think of it as three prongs to this. One is that if we all embrace energy efficiency, we're going to need so much less energy. Let's say we reduce our energy requirements by a third or more in the United States. That means we need to need a lot less energy. And we can do that because we're paying for enormous amounts of inefficiency now. And it's easy to get rid of that kind of waste and it doesn't cost us money and it actually saves us a little bit of money. So that's a huge opportunity. The second is that it may be cloudy where I live but it might be sunny where you live. And the grid is built to distribute electricity around, you know, the entire Western US is on one grid and the entire Eastern US is on a grid. So so we get that intermittency problem solved and we can all put solar, not all, a lot of us can put solar on our rooftop and you don't even have to buy the system anymore. You can just buy the electricity from a solar installer like Sunrun or Tesla or one of those companies. And it costs less than it costs you to buy it from the utility. So some of it's very local to you. You know, you're feeding your excess into the grid all day. You're using it off the grid at night. And this brings down the whole demand for fossil energy. And we may not get to zero soon, but we can get 75, 80% of it gone pretty quickly if we really put our minds to it. That
0: is still a significant amount with quite a huge impact.
1: (laughs) That's that's enormous. Enormous. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So Let's back it up just a little bit. You're very, very involved in being an ecologically intelligent person. You're involved in all the stuff that I read earlier, but mm-hmm. how did you get started?
1: <laughs> By accident, in some ways. Um, I, for 25 years, I owned an exhibit design firm about a dozen people of us, a dozen of us, and we designed trade show exhibits, museum exhibits, air show exhibits. I was traveling the world on the air air show circuit, which is pretty exciting. And in the course of that work, I was invited to design a new museum in Washington DC for the National Academy of Sciences. They're the organization that does all those National Research Council reports that you hear about from time to time. Uh, And that's an incredible opportunity. The first exhibit we did in 2003 was about climate science. And so I learned climate science from some of the most eminent scientists in America who were members of the academy. And I remember being really disturbed by it. But the feeling in 2003 was, well, thank goodness we have time to sort this out and people aren't stupid. We won't do anything dumb, you know. Three years later, I was doing another climate science exhibit for the Birch Aquarium, which is part of Scripps Institution of Oceanography in Southern California. Three years later, the mood among the scientists had just flipped 180 degrees because climate change was accelerating really fast. China was expanding its economy so quickly that emissions were going through the roof faster than anybody thought they would. And I had a moment of awakening to just how deeply into this we are. I mean, it was genuinely an epiphany, you know, one of those moments when the whole world just collapses on you and you suddenly see the whole picture in a heartbeat. And it's one of those things where you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, I I couldn't go back to my other life feeling okay about it. I felt like I, and I looked around, I thought, how many other communication professionals can I name who really know what the science is telling us? And the answer was, I couldn't find any. So, I started a consultancy on the side, which is now what I do full time. And I started concentrating on working with climate scientists and economists and social scientists to answer a basic question How can we create projects to shift our culture in a positive way on climate action? And so, I ended up selling my design business, but not before I tried to decarbonize it. And it turned out we won a statewide award in California because we cut our emissions by two thirds in 15 months. We saved money and nobody suffered. All we did was squeeze waste out of our system, the system that we didn't even realize was there. And this is what gave me this immense sense of hope about it. And it doing that invigorated the staff. You know, my clients started calling me to thank us for doing this. And I realized that there's this enormous wellspring of goodwill for people who really embrace sustainability and climate action but we don't talk about it very often. And so, so it stays hidden below the surface.
0: So what was your one simple trick to turn your whole company around?
1: I struggled just like everybody does. I called a solar installer and they said, "Ah, your roof points the wrong way. We got to build a carport it'll cost you 90 grand. And I was spending $3,500 a year on electricity. So I said, eh, that's not gonna work. And I called an architect, he said, put a, a metal roof and thick foam insulation on your roof and so, so that you'll reflect the sunlight and your building won't heat up. And that was $40,000 investment. So I thought I was stuck. And I, I traded the most business owners own their, the cars owned by their company. So I sold a Toyota small SUV and got a Prius and tried not to drive it. And then we just did simple things. We replaced all of our light bulbs with LEDs our copier broke down. I said, get a copier that does what we need, but make sure it's energy star. Right. And this led to a mantra, make every decision a green decision, which just means you're going to be making decisions anyway, based on the reason you're making that decision in the first place. Now add energy efficiency as your as your co-top priority. We reduced our emissions by two thirds. It was... And this was measured by a third party called the Climate Registry. We didn't measure it ourselves, so it's verified. And that's just an absolutely stunning result for doing things that that seemed small and insignificant at the time.
0: And all you did was follow one rule, make every decision a greener decision. And that was for your company, but all listeners to this podcast, you can do that on your own personal life, too. It's not just for companies, right?
1: That's right. And, And you don't have to strain, right? I wrote a book. My first book was for the exhibition industry on how to go green. And, and I was at a conference where they were doing the book signing. They were giving them away. And this guy who lives in you know, rural Georgia came up to me and he said, well, I'll take your book, but you ain't get, making me get rid of my pickup truck. And I said, I don't want to make you get rid of it. You live in the country, right? He said, yeah. I said, you need a pickup truck, don't you? He said, yeah. I said, okay, then don't spread the pickup truck. What else can you do? And this is the key. Let's pick the low-hanging fruit first. Let's not beat ourselves up because we're not perfect. And let's discover as we go just how far we can go and enjoy the process and feel good about it as we go.
0: Okay, so that's great advice for everybody at a personal level. And I think it's important that all individuals take action personally and if they're able to implement it at their own companies as well. Because... Some people think that the government is just going to take care and fix it all. And mm-hmm. that's definitely not the truth. Would you like to elaborate why?
1: Yes. Do everything you can personally. I mean, take a sense of ownership of it. But it's our collective action that matters, right? We've been told by the fossil fuel industry only to worry about the little tiny stuff that you can do personally and that I can do personally. And it's to make us feel small. But our collective action is huge. And it's huge in two ways. Number one, if we add up all of our energy savings together, it adds up to a lot. But the second reason is because we create a social menu that says saving energy and reducing emissions is what we care about. And that's what they're afraid of. So, so collective action is is what we should think. That's how we should think about it. So think about your household. Think about your business or your, the company you work for, wherever you work. Think about your neighborhood. Think about your community. That's that's the level to think of, and we can just take direct action without waiting for anybody. We don't have to worry about political arguments. We don't have to worry about the ping ponging between Democrats and Republicans, in in making the choices that we make. But let's get way out ahead of them. Let's the industry and consumers can be miles ahead of where the federal government is, and the markets will send signals. Our culture will send signals. And, you know, maybe let, let's see what we can do to make government the last player, the last party to come to the table.
0: And that's where your work with the U.S. ACE National Strategic Planning Framework comes in, right? Because yes. the government wasn't doing their job, so you're helping them along. Maybe Let's explain what the whole strategic planning framework is, because that was something let's I'd see. never heard of before I read your book and I'm, let's let's... Let's, yes. let's define that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So this is the, most, the single most extraordinary thing I've ever been involved with in my career. Part of the Paris Agreement and the underlying UN treaty call on every country to embrace what's called Action for Climate Empowerment, or ACE for short. And what that's about is empowering the public to participate in finding and implementing solutions to climate change. So the idea is to educate, inform, engage, and empower people to participate in policymaking and in in voluntary action, in uh, consumer behavior that moves us forward on climate action. And so every country is urged to create a national strategy to embrace the public. So far, no major emitting country has has done this. Um, Some smaller countries have, and they tend to just assign it to their education ministry and nothing really happens. So I'm part of many, many networks. I mean, I'm, I'm not part of them all. There are many, many networks in the United States that are working on climate action from various points of view, from climate justice to community grassroots activism, to education, to professional training. There's an organization that that works with sustainability directors in cities all around the country. Mayors are making commitments. And so the problem is none of this has ever been strategically aligned. Everybody's doing their own thing. Everybody's competing for funds. The the funders don't have any strategic direction. They just do whatever they want. And so everything's fragmented and good projects prove their worth and then there's no way to scale them up. So a group of us, diverse group of people got together and said, The U.S. needs to create a national strategy. And ultimately, that needs to be an action that's sanctioned by the federal government, by the the White House. Right. And so we asked ourselves, what can we do to move that forward so that there'll be a national strategy quickly? So we decided to try to create for the well, for whoever was going to be the next administration back then, because we didn't know who it would be a strategic planning framework that would start the strategic planning process and carry it as far as we could and test a methodology for doing it. Um, And it ended up involving 150 climate action leaders who work in all the diverse acts, you you name it, they come from that education, activism, federal agencies. um, They come, they're scientists and psychologists and indigenous leaders and black and Hispanic leaders, and uh, just a really diverse group of people, and came together for a series of online dialogues that were genuine dialogues. Nobody was in charge. Nobody had more rank than anyone else. And I was fortunate enough to lead the writing team. There were two of us who did the writing. And so all the notes from all the dialogues were compiled, and we did our best to put them together in the strategic planning framework that that includes a vision for where we should be in 10 years and 20 years and what steps need to be taken to get us there in two years and five years and 10 years um, and we've written this up it's been reviewed by high level climate experts from different domains professions and it's been reviewed by the community that contributed to it and it's available at aceframework.us and it's also in a brand new book that is just coming out at the end of this month that Deb Morrison and I are the authors of called Empowering Climate Action in the United States. It includes the framework plus commentaries by a bunch of luminary people and some other explanatory stuff. Um, And so we've been working to put this in front of the transition team and now put it in front of, of the Biden administration because if they say yes one way the United States can demonstrate leadership as we join the Paris Agreement is we can become the first major emitting country to really harness our strategic resources and align this productive work that so many people are doing in a way that that emboldens the grassroots knowledge and wisdom that all these people have. It's really inspiring. <laughs> and if your <laughs> listeners want to sign on, they can go to aceframework.us and become signatories. And that's a good thing to do too.
0: Yes, yes. And if they have additional questions, what's the best way that they can reach you?
1: Um, They can go to my website, uh, TomBowman.com, and just use the contact link and get in touch and include your email and I'll be in touch with you. Uh, All right. Ask a question and I'll answer it. You bet.
0: And your book is actually part of a series. Would you like to tell us about the other books?
1: Yes. The book series is pretty impressive. I've done some panel discussions with some of the other authors and you listen to them all and you just think, wow, how did I get here? Um, These are people who've been involved in international development and international monetary funds and international pandemic response and a whole bunch of other things. So there's a book called uh, Zero Waste Living the 80-20 Way that's based on the insight that we don't need a few people doing things perfectly. We need a lot of people doing things pretty well. Uh, There's a book uh, called Power Switch that's about overcoming radical inequity in the world. There's a book called The Global global Guidebook for the Next Pandemic. Um, There's a book about how our economic system steers us into directions that might not be where we want to go and how we can change the economic system to be more productive for us. There's a book that's in development now called uh, Reinventing Blackness, that deals with race and and racial injustice and anti-blackness. And so there's this real, there's a, there's a one about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial education in the community colleges, which is where a lot of people get their training. So there's a real variety of, of interesting books. They're all short, they're all 80 to hundred pages long. And they're jam packed with bold insights about how to recover from COVID in a, in a productive way. And it's called Resetting Our Future. ResettingOurFuture.com is where you find all the books. Got to put the plug in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. That's good. (laughs) That's why you're here. (laughs) That's right. So To tease the listeners, because we did reveal some information, but there is a lot of other very fascinating topics that your book discusses, including racial issues behind climate justice, Climate scientists undergoing scrutiny. How big company advertisers play mind games with you. And honestly, that part made me physically angry when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I <Look. laughs> do you want to tease <laughs> listeners about that now? Do you want to discuss it what? Not? Okay, okay. But it's
1: a but it's an optimistic and hopeful book. We have to see what the problems are in order to to be uh, have our defenses up against them.
0: Very yes yes yes. <laughs> and so the. Did you say where to get your book yet?
1: So you can get it at resettingourfuture.com, and that will show you all of the retail outlets, that online retail outlets. So you can pick who you want to buy from. Um, Amazon has it. It's called "What If Solving the Climate Crisis Is Simple." You can find it on my website, TomBowman.com. All the you know, all roads lead to the book.
0: <laughs> Do you have an audiobook?
1: Um, there is no audiobook because the publisher doesn't do audiobooks, but oh, okay. I'm considering creating one anyway. So stand by on yeah. that. But it is available in ebook form from Apple and from Kindle for Kindle, uh, as well as paperback.
0: Fantastic, fantastic! All right, so that um, is pretty much all of my hard-hitting questions. <laughs> now, before I let you go, I did a little bit of research on you and your book and all your accomplishments and I was actually having a hard time finding information about you as a person but I found a picture of you with a guitar so I made the assumption that you're a musician and now that I have you on the video I can see the guitars in the background and the keyboard so I have a quick game that I think that you would enjoy
1: all right (laughs) Uh are you
0: are you familiar with the game catchphrase no I'm not Okay, so you kind like you have charades where you have a phrase and I got to act it out for you to guess it. That's obviously not going to work audio wise. So with catchphrase, you have a phrase that I want you to guess, but I'm just going to give you verbal clues.
1: We might. Oh, are we going to run into a generational culture identity block here?
0: Well, I'm going to let you pick your musical topics. Okay. So okay. there's there's pop, boy band jazz country and classic rock so if we can do like three of those what three do you think would be your strengths
1: well let's leave out boy bands okay because i don't pay any attention okay um and let's leave out uh well you pick the one other one to eliminate don't eliminate classic rock though i might have a chance there
0: (laughs) okay any others that you think you're gonna have a chance with
1: Pop. Depending on the era, jazz might work, country might work, and pop might work.
0: Okay. I'm just
1: not paying attention too much these days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I th-
1: I'm writing books. Get... <laughs> all
0: right. How about we do this? We'll just do the four that's left and all see right. which ones you get. <laughs> and you, all right. You might get you all go. of them. Okay. So the, the first category is pop. Mm-hmm. This artist was discovered at age 13 by his manager, Scooter Braun. His first hit was Baby, and then his song 10,000 Hours, he wrote for his wedding to Haley Baldwin. Other songs include Sorry and What Do You Mean?
1: I'm I'm utterly striking out.
0: Okay. (laughs) I think every girl has a crush on him. He used to date Selena Gomez. Hmm. He was actually extremely involved in uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. I don't know if that helps. He's from Canada.
1: You know, you're the people I think of when you say Canada. (laughs) This is going to be terrible. Daniel Lanois and Neil Young.
0: (laughs) All right. So there's a generational gap there.
1: (laughs) There's a generational gap there. I'm sorry to say.
0: Okay. Do you want to know the answer? I do. Justin Bieber.
1: I almost said Justin Bieber, and I thought, do all women really have the hots for Justin Bieber? Well, is not that really all pretty?
0: of them, but a but, strong majority of the younger generation, I would okay. say. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, good. I learned something on your podcast. I'm glad.
0: <laughs> okay. The next category is jazz. Mm-hmm. So this musician played the trumpet, his mm-hmm. nickname was Satchmo. He was born in New Orleans.
1: Louis Armstrong.
0: Hey, all right.
1: Good job. Good job. Satchmo's a dead giveaway.
0: (laughs) The next musical category is country music. So this Mm -hmm. person, his debut single was Austin. He is a judge on The Voice. He's engaged to Gwen Stefani. Oh, yes. Do you want me to keep going?
1: No, but I watched an interview with the two of them. Is it Garth Brooks?
0: No, no. keep trying. You're so close. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was previously married to Miranda Lambert.
1: Yeah, the problem is I'm just his name isn't coming to mind.
0: Ah. Uh, his popular songs include The Boys Round Here and Honey Bee.
1: Uh it begins
0: with the letter B. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Blake Shelton.
1: Blake Shelton. Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay, classic rock. You got this. We'll see. (laughs) This very wild band was formed in 1981. The drummer married Pamela Anderson. They had a Netflix movie called The Dirt. Popular songs include Girls, Girls, Girls and Dr. Feel Good.
1: Yeah, I know the songs. (laughs) It was a bunch of songs sound like
0: it was a bunch of misfits.
1: Yeah. Well, but that describes rock and roll bands, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) Okay, so the drummer was Tommy Lee. Yeah. And then uh Nikki Six was one of the lead guitarists. So, do you want the answer? Do you want to? I do. I do want
1: the answer. Yeah. The Motley crew. Motley crew. Okay.
0: (laughs) So, what kind of music do you play or listen to?
1: A band I was in for about five years has two albums on iTunes called Licorice L I C K E R I S H. It's it's blues based original rock for the most part. So,
0: ah, blues. um, I should have done a blues category.
1: Yeah. Blues I would have gotten. (laughs) Reggae, I might have gotten too.
0: Well, thank you very much for playing.
1: Of course. It's fun to do. <laughs> I'd like very... one for four. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's very different when you're on the spot, too. <laughs> That's true. As you described your involvement earlier, you're uh, quite a big deal when it comes to the whole sustainability world and helping the government out. So I am very, very honored that you took the time to come on to this podcast and be interviewed and share your book and, and share your wealth of knowledge that you have as well.
1: Well, thank you, but I will tell you, I'm just an ordinary guy, and uh, the only difference is that I'm come out and talk about it. But I keep meeting more and more people who are doing extraordinary things, and it always makes me inspired. So thank you for doing this. I really appreciate being here.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you again. Have a good one.
1: All right. You too.
0: Wow. Thank you again, Tom. Thank you. Thank you so much. I do want to share with all of you a little bit behind the scenes information. After I hit the stop record button, Tom informed me that he does not have cable TV Netflix, or anything like that, and I informed him that he is a very involved individual who spends his days writing books and saving the world, and that's perfectly acceptable. Also, his music genre of choice is blues, and there was most definitely a culture gap, (laughs) so I do apologize for that, but let's applaud Tom for being a great sport and playing along anyways. I also want to thank Tom not only for taking the time to come onto the podcast and explain how to solve the climate crisis, but also for all of his hard work with the planning framework. Tom shared that he had an aha moment that made him weak at his knees and the room spun around, and I want to share mine with you. I read a disturbing fact that made me stop in my tracks. We will be out of oil by 2050. And as we learned from Jolion Collier in episode 61 – Coral reefs will all be dead and gone by 2050. Will there still be life in 30 years? If so, what will it look like? I will be in my 60s, and my kids will be in their 30s, which is where I am right now. Will I have grandkids at that time? How will I take care of everyone and ensure that we all survive? You think gas prices are high now? What will happen as we get to lower levels of oil and eventually run out? Now, if you're forced to take economics, also known as econ, in high school like I was, you understand that as demand goes up and inventory goes low, the price goes sky high. So better start paying really close attention to sustainable options right now. I do want to leave you with a provoking thought. Where do you see yourself in 30 years? This isn't that question of what achievements are you going to accomplish in 30 years. No, literally, what do you think life is going to be like in 30 years? for you, for your kids, for your family members and friends, society in general. Kind of makes me weak at my knees, makes the room spin a little bit, even throws a little nauseous flip-flop feeling in my stomach too. Just think about it and be prepared. Don't panic. Be smart and get prepared for it. And hopefully we will have enough people like Tom Bowman being actively involved in creating that planning strategic framework and getting us and our country and the whole world on board with changing the way things are because we're at a point where we absolutely have to and I hope that not just Tom but people listening to this podcast you everybody can do something you don't have to be all superhero sustainable person but you just got to do more than what you're doing now and it will pay off in the long run. 30 years of tiny little actions here and there totally add up collectively. We can do it. We can do it. Spread the word too. That helps. Be sure to tune in next week on the show so you can learn the one simple trick to reducing your stress and anxiety and gaining more free time. Yay! (laughs) I think that's what we all want. (laughs) What is this one simple trick? You just gotta get rid of all of your stuff. <laughs> Laura Durenberger will come onto the show next week and teach us all about the benefits of minimalism. Until then, sustain our nation, keep taking action, keep sharing your thoughts and ideas, and keep saving the world. And continue to stay sustainable. Bye.